Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 29th, we are studying Psalm 146. Hallelujah! That is the way Psalm 146 begins and ends praising the Lord for all that he does. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's wonderful to get to be here to praise the Lord and to join in the study of Psalm 146. It is a wonderful psalm that we have before us today, Pastor Ill. Help us with context. What should we know as we prepare to look at Psalm 146 today? Psalm 146 comes at a really interesting time in the book of Psalms. As the book was edited, uh, Psalm 146 begins a series of the last five psalms, which are all hallelujah psalms. And they all have this phrase, praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, hallelujah, uh, short for halal or praise Yahweh, uh, God's name. And so that is certainly the theme here. At the end of the Psalms, uh, there's some who will speculate that uh, these last five Psalms were some of the last Psalms to be written, and that may be the case. Uh, But regardless of the time when they're written, uh, we know that these Psalms uh, certainly were known by Jesus and by the uh, authors of the New Testament. There are a number of places where Psalm 146 is cited and quoted, uh, especially in the book of Acts and in St. John's Revelation. And so we see and hear this theme there. And uh, we also, as we go through the psalm, uh, with a lot of psalms, we ask the question, was this used in uh, the temple as people praised, to, uh, as they praised the Lord together, or was this used uh, individually? It seems that Psalm 40, 146, by nature of the number of times that it uses the word I, is the song of an, of an individual person praising the Lord that was then used and, and is adapted today uh, as we praise the Lord together. Not that anything has changed with the psalm, but even when we come together as a group, we're a whole bunch of, of I people who praise the Lord together. Now, the, the real question, Pastor Ill, is the word hallelujah. Is it hallelujah or hallelujah? That's the question I get asked all the time. That's a great question. I would refer you to, uh, to a better Hebrew speaker than me, uh, <laughs> to be really honest. Uh, hallelujah is probably, is, is probably the correct Hebrew, uh, but hallelujah might be the correct Greek. And so it's, it's one of those questions of, as, as the word of God moves around the world, everybody has their own accent and everybody has their own language and their own uh, ability of using the letter H uh, to, to really be honest about it. So uh, where we are uh, here in the United States, hallelujah, hallelujah, bring it on. Uh, the big theme behind it is, is the theme of praise the Lord. 
Mm, that's right. I, I'm really glad to hear you give that answer because that's usually the answer that I give too, is that the difference between hallelujah and hallelujah is primarily one of which language you're speaking. So I, I'm pleased to know that there's at least one person that agrees with me on that answer. Uh, and from time to time, he, speaking with people who use different languages, they pronounce the same words slightly differently. And this is a case where uh, there's not a a significant or biblical difference between hallelujah and hallelujah. Uh, of course, there is the uh, that great chorus that shows up in, in Handel's work, uh, the mm. hallelujah chorus. Uh, and every once in a while, people get really excited one way or the other about how to pronounce uh, this phrase that means praise the Lord. Uh, as long as we're praising the Lord, I'm good with it, though. That's right. That's that's a good approach, Pastor Ill. And it is just, just a helpful reminder that when you see those two, you're you're actually saying the same thing. And what you are saying is praise the Lord. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what's happening in Psalm 146. Now, as as we praise the Lord in Psalm 146, it's striking because the opening and closing say this, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But then as the psalm gets into the meat of it in the middle, there's quite a bit of doctrine about instruction on who the Lord is and what he does. Can you give us a basic outline of what we're going to encounter here in Psalm 146? Sure. So like you mentioned, Psalm 146 has has this bookend. So it starts uh, with verse 1 and 2 having an introduction of praise the Lord and a call to praise where the the psalmist invites you and me and the whole church to join in this praise, uh, but then goes on to recognize the world around us where earthly princes and kings, they're here, but they're not to be trusted. They're futile. And uh, instead, verses five through seven show that God is the creator and preserver of this whole creation and this whole world. And in verses seven through nine, it talks about how God acts for his people. So he didn't just create everything that is and then walk away. Uh, instead, he creates and preserves, and now he acts. And then in verses, uh, uh, and then verse 10 is a recommitment to Yahweh's reign and that refrain and that closing bookend of Hallelujah. Let's take a look at the text of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. That is Psalm 146. So, Pastor Ellen, those first two verses, we get the, the theme of praise, hallelujah, that's how the psalm starts. What's there as the psalmist invites us, or invites himself, he calls himself to praise? What's there in those first two verses? So, we're called here to praise the Lord, and 
even to the point where uh, the psalmist kind of serves as his own muse, saying, oh, my soul, praise the Lord. And then he goes on and expands uh, his praise, saying that this will last as long as he lives. And as long as he has his being, he will praise the Lord. Uh, I think this is a really helpful thing for us to remember today, that our whole lives uh, are called to serve and praise the Lord. And as long as we have our being, we praise the Lord. I think that it's really interesting to note that since the psalm is quoted in uh, the Revelation and has a place in the idea of the eternal praise of the church, as long as we live, we will praise the Lord and we will be joined with this psalm and other psalms as long as we have our being. And that's forever. Uh, Every time we get to use this psalm in our church services or in our devotions or in our Bible studies, it's another... time of using the psalm. But in a broad sense, the Christian's use of this psalm is lifelong, and we will continue joining this psalm of praise all the time, going on into heaven and into the resurrection. And for us as Christians who have been given eternal life by our Savior, there's never a time when this psalm isn't on our lips. And when the phrase, Alleluia, isn't our phrase to pray and to praise and to consider in all that we do. And so as the psalmist invites us to do to praise as long as we live, uh, that's exactly what we do, recognizing this never-ending praise psalm. I'm curious on the, the place in the book of Revelation where this psalm is, is used, Pastor Ill. Are you, are you referring to, say, like Revelation chapter 19, where there's the, the song of hallelujah there in, in heaven, or, or is there another place that we should have in mind? Uh, I think so. Let me double check really briefly. <laughs> but that's okay, because I, I, I was trying to think through the book of Revelation, and I it, it's in chapter 19 where the word, and it's spelled with an H there, by the way, <laughs> hallelujah shows up multiple times uh, from the multitude in heaven. It's, it's sung there, but I didn't know if there was a, another place that, that I, should, I should have in mind. That was the one that, that came to my mind right away. Let me look in my uh, wonderful cross-reference list here. You do that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a few other oh, comments while wonderful. you're that's looking a, as well, because I, I really appreciate how you, you brought out from these two verses the, the matter of, well, two things, the lifelong nature of our praise. So as long as I live, the praise that the psalmist is engaging in here and that we would engage in as Christians is not something that only happens in a church building on Sunday morning or only when we're saying our prayers before bedtime or when we wake up in the morning. It's it's a lifelong thing. It happens throughout our lives. And and again, all the way from, from baptism, even unto death. So, I mean, this lifelong nature, but then how it even extends into eternity. I, I really appreciate how you, how you brought that out as well, because that was one of the, the questions that I had about verse two in particular, where the psalmist in verse two puts the phrases, as long as I live and while I have my being, those two phrases are in parallel with each other. And that second one in particular, while I have my being, really made me think that within this psalm, there is a hope of resurrection. And particularly when we get to the the matter of not trusting in princes and why we shouldn't, I think that what's said here in verse two, that really highlights the, the eternal nature of our praise and part of the reason for our praise. We can praise God now because we know he's the one who's going to raise us from the dead so that we'll praise him for eternity. Absolutely. 
Uh, some of the other places in Revelation that I was thinking about were Revelation 5.13 and also Revelation 10.6. Uh, so in Revelation 5.13, uh, John records, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And Romans 10.6 references a little more of what's coming in the psalm uh, as it references that God created heaven and earth and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea is and what is in it, uh, and that there would be no more delay. And so I was getting a little ahead of myself with Revelation 10. That's okay. But the idea of Revelation 5 having this song of praise that John witnesses uh, shows that this is part of the eternal song of praise uh, that is going on now in the heavenly courts and in the heavenly courts uh, for to come for us. How does that, how does that affect us? But when we go say to the divine service and we praise God there, or even in daily life, how does, how does the fact that our praises will continue not just in this life, but into eternal life, how does that, comfort us? How does that affect us in our our daily lives as Christians? There's this really kind of interesting timey-wimey thing going on when we go to the divine service, where we're getting ready for our eternal life, but we're also recognizing that our life here and now is part of our eternal life. And so we're doing the things here, when we use Psalm 146, that we'll be doing in heaven and in the resurrection too. And there are certainly going to be some, some huge changes between us now and us then. But uh, the praise that we bring to the Lord of heaven and earth uh, is not going to be one of them. And we use very similar songs and psalms of praise now as are shown to us in scripture. And so uh, to simply say that this is uh, choir practice for heaven, uh, I love that thought. But we're already even now joining with the heavenly choir. We're just doing it from from here. And it's even better than just choir practice. We're already singing with the choir, even though we're in a different location for the time being. I like that. I like that, Pastor Hill. Because I, 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 I know I've talked about choir practice for for heaven before, but I like the the way that you, you've nuanced that in, a, I think, in a more helpful way, that it's not just practice, but we're actually part of the choir. We're just in a, a different place right now, and, and we're waiting until the whole choir is together. Of course, with the, the choir director, the Lord himself, uh, maybe I'm carrying it too far. Well, uh, it always makes me think kind of about uh, you're patching somebody in. Uh, there you go. Uh, with, the, with the choir, and we're getting patched in, and I think that's fabulous. Uh because it's the same Lord, it's the same saints and the same angels. We're just in a different place for now. But the day will come when we will be uh, in person in a different way uh, before the Lamb on his throne, getting to praise the same Lamb for doing the same thing with the same saints and angels, uh, and we'll be there with them. And that's something certainly to look forward to. Mm, yes. And and then certainly something that, again, comes into the present and and causes us to praise right now. So not only I will praise the Lord as long as I live, but I'm, I'm praising him right now in this life, right now. And that's a part of the praise that will continue for all eternity. So what a, a marvelous eternal view that we're getting here already in these first two verses 
Now, as the psalm continues, then it's going to contrast this with the mortals, with what's happening right here in front of them. And, and the way the psalmist puts it, put not your trust in princes. Why does the, the psalmist make this move? What's his, his point as he continues into verse three? The psalmist is setting us up for a contrast. And so he starts with what's in the here and now. You want to look at the earthly princes? You want to look at kings? You want to look at rulers? Guess what? They're not getting the job done. They're not good enough at what they do to deserve your praise. Uh, the psalmist started with praise the Lord. Well, certainly praise the Lord. But when it comes to earthly princes and rulers, don't praise them. They are not like the Lord. And where he's going to show the things that the Lord has done and is doing and will continue to do will show the futility and the inabilities of earthly kings and princes. And for us, it's really easy to, from time to time, look around and and think about the things that are happening around us and the things that uh, government officials or rulers or leaders or, or local politicians are doing is, is having immense importance. And there's a certain importance to what they do, but the importance of what they do pales in comparison and is in no way equal to or even close to the work of the Lord God. After all, the Lord God creates and preserves. He acts. He sets things right, something that we so often think of human princes and rulers and leaders and government, government officials to do. But God does it in a way that goes far above and beyond what they could ever do. And so in verses 3 and 4, it sets up this inability of princes and kings to actually make a difference in the life of the world. They can make some differences, sure, but they can do nothing like is within the scope of the Lord God. Uh, verse 4 says it very well. Both these verses say it very well. There's no salvation in these uh, princes. When these government officials die, they return to the earth. Everything that they were planning, everything they were working on, they perish. It's gone. Uh, here today, gone tomorrow for these princes and leaders and rulers. On the other hand, the work of Yahweh is very, very different. And it will not perish. It will not pass away. As long as we live, which is forever, as long as we have our being into the ages of ages, God's plans will not perish. And there is salvation because the Lord brings it to us. It's completely and totally different from these princes and rulers. Yeah, the, the contrast, I think, is, and this is why I think the, the theme of resurrection is important to bring out in the first two verses, is precisely because of the contrast then that's placed in front of us in verses three and four. Princes, for as much good as they can do and should do, they, they can't save you from death because they meet the same faith. You know, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day, his plans perish. And, and who knows? I mean, you, you mentioned that we're not positive when this psalm was written, but perhaps it is one of the, the later psalms. And, and putting this psalm perhaps in an, maybe an exilic context or even a post-exilic context, so either during the exile or after the exile, the people of Israel, when they've watched as well, what happened to the Davidic king, why isn't he ruling over us anymore? 
perhaps there's a, a bit of reflection on the the part of the people of Israel. Again, we don't don't know that that's the context, but it, I think it would fit very well into that context. And no matter when this was written, you can look at all of the rulers and leaders of God's people of Israel and recognize uh, that they too were fallen. None of those leaders by themselves brought salvation. They died. Uh, Thinking about the place that the psalm sometimes serves in the book of Acts, especially in Acts 14, uh, in some of the sermons in Acts, Peter and Paul are quick to point out the leaders of the people died. Uh, in Acts 2, Peter even says, King David's tomb is just down the street. Go check it out if you want to. King David called Christ his Lord and God, even though he hadn't met him yet. That's where salvation is. Salvation doesn't come from David or Solomon or Saul, the you know, the great kings of Israel. And there were kings of Israel that came along afterwards that were, well, not as faithful and not as effective and not as good as Saul and David and Solomon. And their plans didn't last any longer than their death either. And so whenever this psalm comes from, princes and kings and rulers aren't the ones who establish eternal plans. And there's no eternal salvation coming from the sons of men. Hmm. I appreciate you, you know, widening the context of it, because I, I do think that when you, you know, when you read through first and second Kings or, or the Chronicles as well, and you read about the varying accounts of the Kings that are given, they all, they all end very similarly with the King dies and he's gathered to his fathers or, or something similar to that language over and over again, both kinds of Kings, both the good Kings who trust in the Lord and the wicked Kings who, who worshiped idols, they all end up dying. And, and even in that context, what's said here in these verses of Psalm 146 almost make me think of, of one of the good kings of, of King Josiah, who Josiah's reign was, was one of a lot of good things happened during his reign. They found the book of the law. They celebrated the Passover again. There was a, a bit of a reformation that, that happens among the people of Judah. And, and yet, he dies very tragically, I think you would say, in a battle. And it's like, whoa, what happened? Things were going so great under this king, and now he's dead. I mean, maybe maybe that context even is, is even better than a time when there's no kings, when you've got a really good king who was following the Lord and doing what the Lord commanded. When you see him die, you, you recognize all the more the truth of these words. Absolutely. Uh, for for the way that we see things here on here on earth and here in this creation everything is impermanent and it's here today and gone tomorrow this psalm focuses us very helpfully on there is something bigger than just what we can see and observe and know uh, we focus on the work of the lord which is permanent over and against our own uh, earthly impermanence with that comment, Pastor L, I'm, I'm curious on this matter of, you know, it says, put not your trust in princes. And we've been talking primarily about kings and rulers. But in, in the rest of verse three, it, it says also, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Can we think about, you know, not putting our trust in princes in a bit wider of a sense, not just what we might consider government, but is there a wider sense in, in that which we are not to trust in these verses? I think so. 
And I think in a certain sense, it is, uh, you could even expand it to everything that we see and perceive and know, know kind of in air quotes now, uh, because what we know now isn't the same as what the Lord knows. And it isn't the same as the way that things really are for the creator and preserver of all things. What God knows is going to work forever. What we know and in what we see uh, from the sons of men, uh, by itself, there's no salvation there. It takes the work of God to bring salvation. And it takes the work of God to do something that is truly permanent. Uh, So I think there's also a comparison here to the way we think things are versus the way that things really are by the work of God. So, I mean, what are what are some of those other things that you know, we think it is this way that might elevate themselves to it? Uh, I think we're talking about idolatry here, honestly. So, I mean, when I think about, you know, what else there might be, things like money come to mind, uh, maybe even science, like our knowledge. These are things that we're tempted to put our trust in, but ultimately will perish and, and fail us when push comes to shove. What, what else do you think might be in this category that we're talking about? Sure. Uh, I think maybe as a subset of science, you could think about our physical health and well-being, mm-hmm. um, where when we hurt or when we're sick or when, uh, when we are medically out of our own control, we reach a point where, where this becomes one of the very most important things for us. And we want to go to the doctor and get a diagnosis and we want things to be better. Uh, but it seems like there's nothing that we can do to make it better. And uh, the day will come when uh, breath departs and we're returned to the earth and all of the plans that we had to fix our health or to restore us to health, well, th- those are gone too. Uh, and it, it makes so much of our medical adventures seem really futile and really, uh, you know, we can try everything in front of us, but it might not change things a whole lot. Um, Just like we could talk about uh, our career advancement or working and living with our families as we can do all of these things, but all of these things that seem so important to us aren't really within our control. And, uh, in a here today, gone tomorrow world, we think we have it all under control and we try to put this illusion upon ourselves, telling ourselves that we're in control, trying to show other people that we're in control. And at the end of the day, we're not controlling anything. Uh, So with that said, uh, we have to recognize that the Lord our God is bigger and stronger and more permanent and more able to act than we are because everything we touch isn't going to last. Uh, It seems like uh, these two verses line up a whole lot with the book of Ecclesiastes, where it talks about Mm -hmm. how everything is vanity and everything passes away and everything we think we know here and now certainly does pass away. Mm -hmm. But the Lord is eternal, and he gives eternal life to those who trust in him. And so we praise him, as Psalm 146 directs us to do. We're going to pick up more of the psalm on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Psalm 146 with Pastor Peter Ill. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 29th. We're studying Psalm 146 with Pastor Peter Ill. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 3 and 4. And before we move on, I just want to want to clarify, because we've talking about the reason that we should not trust in princes and earthly rulers and in other things that might fool us into think that they they have some sort of ability to help us ultimately, things like money. I think you mentioned family. We talked a little bit about health. Just to clarify, these things are are good gifts from God. It is good to have good government, for example. We pray for it in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. The problem we're talking about here, I think, is, is idolatry. When we take something that's good and elevate it to that which is ultimate. Can you talk a little bit about that that's going on here in Psalm 146? Right. And I, I think to go all the way back to the first couple of verses, uh, when we praise the Lord, and when that comes out of our soul, as long as we live, as long as we have our being, in this permanent way, it is the work of the Lord that matters. And so often we start to think about the work of the government or the work of our health and our doctors or, or anything else that we turn our attention to, that we're called by God to turn our attention to. And we sometimes subtly, sometimes less subtly, disconnect it from the work of God. And we perceive it as this is the work that's worth doing. And the work of the Lord just kind of falls out of our attention and falls out of our focus. But Psalm 146, uh, in, a, in a very helpful way, redirects us and pulls us back on the path and says, you want to talk about permanent works, works that are going to change the world, works that are going to last? Great. But those don't come simply on the works of princes and sons of men. No, these things come ultimately from the work of God. And in the next verses of this psalm, the, really the entirety of the psalm to come, is going to show us the works of God that cannot be disconnected and cannot be uh, pulled away from everything that we know and experience, because everything that we know and experience is truly the work of God. He's the one who created everything that is. He's the one who preserves it. He's the one who works for his people. In light of all of that, there's nothing that isn't touched by the Lord. And so there's no room to say, well, the work of God is great, but now we need to stop talking about that and go talk about uh our government, or go talk about uh, our medical situation, because those are somehow different than the work of God. No, they are the self-same. Uh, God is the one who gives us our government. God is the one who gives us our health. 
God is the one who sometimes allows us to suffer. And in the midst of all of that, God's work is permanent, even as he brings us into that resurrection where we will praise him as long as we live. So take us into the the next verses then that begin to speak more about the work of the Lord. In verses 5 through 7, I think you said this emphasizes particularly God's creative work and his preserving work. Right. And so uh, just to hear those words again, uh, Psalm 146 verses 5 through 7 go like this. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Um, And so this reminds us that the Lord is the one who created heaven and earth. Uh, The church today and Christians today, especially in the Western world, are often attacked that it isn't God who created. Maybe there's other ways that the world came into being. But scripture calls us continually back to this truth as it's affirmed here in Psalm 146, as it's talked about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, as it's talked about in John 1, that nothing exists without the creative work of God. Our hope is in him because, after all, he's the one who made everything that exists, the heavens and the earth, the seas, everything that fills them. And many times when Psalm 146 is quoted in the New Testament, it has to do with this plain truth that it is the Lord who has created everything. And the image of God as creator is one of the things that other biblical authors have really picked up on from this psalm. And it's an important element of the psalm. It's not all that's here. But to say, hey, the Lord God created everything that is, not only did he create it, he's keeping it going. You know what the psalmist says? He keeps faith forever. He's even acting for those who are oppressed, bringing them justice. For those who are hungry, he's giving them food. God didn't create the world and then walk away. Sometimes there's this talk of of God, the watchmaker, who sets up creation and then just kind of checks out for a while. But that's not the God and the Lord who is revealed in Psalm 146 or in the rest of Scripture. God is living and active, continuing to come for the oppressed, bringing them justice, for the hungry, giving them food, and continuing to keep faith forever, continuing to preserve and protect. When government's doing a good thing, the Lord is doing good things through them. When the government seems to not be doing a good thing, the Lord is there working for justice and to give food to the hungry as well. When we're hurting or sick, when we deal with chronic illness or uh, any of a number of other trials or sufferings that we sometimes face, the Lord is continuing to act. He never gives up on us. He never checks out from his creation. He never goes off to take a nap or do something else. He's always active and acting. And Psalm 146 reminds us of that because there are times when the devil or the world or our own sinful flesh would like to try to mislead us and say, well, you know, maybe that's not so much a thing. Uh, Maybe God doesn't seem to care as much as you would like him to. Psalm 146 says he sure does. He is continuing to come and preserve and protect his creation and to act in the middle of his creation. Hmm. 
Well, and I think one of the ways that Psalm 146 emphasizes that is the way in which these truths about the Lord are expressed is in the form of a beatitude. Verse 5 starts that way, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God. So this God who created all things and preserves all things, he is the one who does this for the sake of blessing those who trust in him. It, it's not He's not this... He's not just an impersonal force out there doing these things, but he's actually doing it for you to bless you. Right. And and as you talk about God not being impersonal, but personal, I think that it's also helpful to go all the way back to the beginning of the psalm and think about how uh, the psalm mm-hmm. calls us to, to praise Yahweh or to praise the Lord. Okay. Uh, a lot of times in scripture, we see that word Lord, uh, but it's written with the, the big capital L and then the little capital O-R-D. Uh, but that is simply a stand in for God's name as he reveals it, his name Yahweh, uh, that he gave to Moses, that it shows up all the way through the book of Genesis and continues on through the Old Testament. The Lord Yahweh is a God who gives his name to his people and who acts with them and who wants to be called out to by name. And so as we pray and praise with Alleluia, praising the name of the Lord Yahweh himself, he is a God who is personally known, who personally acts, who is connected with us and who doesn't uh, want to simply hide behind titles, but he is a God who knows us and a God who wants to be known by us. Well, and I, that ties into something else I wanted to, to ask you about. In verse 5, not only does, I mean, the second part of verse 5 says, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, there's Yahweh, as you said. In the first part of verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, particularly the God of Jacob, which is, I, I think, a familiar enough title from the scriptures. Sometimes we hear about Yahweh being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and often it does get shortened to just the God of Jacob or the God of Israel. But particularly, we have the God of Jacob here, and I—I I don't know. Did you did you reflect on that at all as to perhaps why is there something in Jacob's life or his account in the Book of Genesis that that might fit into what is said about the Lord here that that we hear about the God of Jacob particularly? I'm I'm not sure that there's something especially especially in the life of Jacob. Uh, for what it's worth, it's helpful for us to remember that, that Jacob and Israel are the same guy, that Jacob is renamed by the angel of the Lord as Israel. And so we recognize that for God's people of Israel, well, there are also God's people descended from Jacob. Uh, and God has revealed himself appearing uh, like I said before, as the angel of the Lord giving his blessing and his confidence to to Jacob or to Israel and to all of his descendants, that there are a lot of, of gods, in quotes, out there in the world, but none of them have the same authority. None of them have shown up in the same way that, the, that Yahweh has, because honestly, they don't exist. They are figments of our imagination or figments of other people's imagination. But here comes Yahweh, no figment of an imagination. He's known by Jacob and to Abraham and Isaac too. He is Yahweh our God. He is the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. He is the one who keeps faith forever. And there is no uh, getting away from that. There's no changing that. Hmm. 
That, that's fair, Pastor Ill. And, and yeah, Jacob and Israel, same person. I just was, was thinking, you know, Jacob is his name before it gets changed. And and just some of the things that you associate with the name Jacob, that you know, he's kind of a trickster. He, he cheats his brother out of his birthright. He has to run away from home. But then, you know, the Lord comes to him there at Bethel and makes the promise. Uh, just some just some thoughts that that ran through my head as I was reflecting on on these verses. But again, that he is this personal God known to these people. He gives us his name so that we might use it, so that we might praise him for all that he's doing here for not only for Jacob and those in the past, but for us in the present to bless us. Now, we get to, to some very specific things that the Lord does as the, the psalm continues. I'll, I'll read again for us. This is picking up in the middle of verse 7. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Take us into the works of the Lord in these verses, Pastor L. As we read these verses, it seems not only like this is something written for us in Psalm 146, but it even makes us think of other passages of Scripture as we hear about the Lord setting the prisoners free and opening the eyes of the blind. It sounds very much like the Lord speaking in Isaiah, uh, through Isaiah in chapter 61. It also sounds an awful lot like Jesus' response when the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and they say, well, should we be looking for you or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus answers by quoting Isaiah, these words from the psalm are also very much in line with, with that, talking about the work of the Lord who acts not just in creating or preserving, but the Lord who breaks into creation to set prisoners free, to make it so that the blind see, to lift up the bowed down, uh, that the Lord loves the righteous. And as we think about the lifting up of the bowed down and the loving of the righteous, you mentioned that verse 5 has a beatitude, a blessed is he line. Mm -hmm. The Lord lifting up those who are bowed down, the Lord loving the righteous, brings us to the beatitudes that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we see uh, these words of Psalm 146, uh, verses 7 through 10, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. When we want to see God acting, when we want to see the work of the Lord who breaks into his creation and who does these blessing things for people, where do we most clearly see them? We see them in Jesus, who does miracles, who teaches with power and authority unlike anybody else's power and authority who ultimately dies and rises again to restore all of the creation that he has made, to reveal that he is fully involved in this creation, restoring it to the very good state that he originally made it in, and undoing the effects of sin and death. And so, in Christ, prisoners are set free, the eyes of the blind are opened, the bowed down are lifted up, the righteous are loved, those who are sojourners and travelers, the widows and the fatherless, they are cared for in Christ as God continues to work for his people. And we can talk about God working for people sometimes in a, 
in a broad way or in a, in a, in a non-specific way. We can talk in general about God's blessings, but this psalm also is specific enough that we can say, where do we really see God acting for his people? Where do we really see God doing all of these things? We most fully see them in the work of Jesus for the church, for all of creation, for the whole world. And we continue to hold very specifically and very intentionally to the work of Jesus for us. I'm glad you brought up the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks in Matthew 5. And I I think particularly for the first one, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And, And all that that means, I think really... This psalm helps us to open that up, and the way the way that I I see it is in the use of the word righteous within Psalm 146. When you look at the the people that the Lord is doing things for throughout this this set of verses, you've got He's setting prisoners free, He's opening the eyes of the blind, He's lifting up the bowed down, He's watching over sojourners and upholding the widow and the fatherless. Throughout these verses, the Lord is helping those who are helpless. And it's in that context that he says he also loves the righteous. I think this really gives us a, a good picture of what it means to be righteous in, in this sense, and also then what it means that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that the Lord loving the righteous is him giving, I mean, this is this is Luther, right? He gives his righteousness to people who are not righteous. That's, I mean, it's a it's a gracious thing. It's not that he's loving you because you're such a great person who's done all these great things. He loves you in Christ who has made you his righteous one, which I think ties into what Jesus is in the Beatitudes. And, and just the way that that word, the Lord loves the righteous shows up in this context, I really think helps us to understand how that word righteousness is used in this Psalm and really throughout the Psalms and, and even in the, all the scriptures. Or to hang with the uh, language of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where it says uh, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, will receive the blessings of God. Uh, So it is. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are getting it, not because of who they are in themselves, but because the righteous God has come to meet mankind, to restore them and to bring them that righteousness. Like you said, And like Luther says, not because they earned it or not because they have this righteousness inherent in themselves, but because they have the full gifts of God uh, ready to go uh, as something that they have received from the one who is righteous to them and for them. Uh, The Lord brings that righteousness. It reminds me much of how in Romans 4 it talks about how God credited. Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Uh, That's not a, Abram earned his righteousness by faith. No, it was accounted to him. It was uh, uh, credited to him. It was something that the Lord saw and gave to him, not something that Abraham did himself. Yeah, and we have that same matter of righteousness here in Psalm 146. Now, the the psalm closes with these words in verse 10, the Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. And then, of course, hallelujah, praise the Lord is the last word of the psalm. In verse 10, this matter of the Lord reigning, I think was 
implicit in the first part of the psalm, as we talked about praising him and not trusting in the princes, here it's made explicit. What's being said here about the the reign of the Lord? Why is this a, an important concept for us as Christians? Uh, just about everything that has gotten said in the psalm before kind of is tied together uh, here in verse 10. So as opposed to the princes and the sons of men in verses three and four, the Lord will reign forever, even though those guys didn't. Uh, the Lord who created everything that exists is reigning now and will reign forever. Uh, the Lord who has acted in the past, the Lord who acts in Christ, will continue to act and will continue to reign uh, even into the resurrection as we are gathered around the Lamb on his throne. Uh, all generations will know this. Uh, he will continue doing those things that he does, continuing to set the prisoners free and opening the eyes of the blind, continuing to love the righteous in a way that doesn't end, in a way that will not end, because the Lord reigns forever. The Lord is the king forever. And you can fully see the themes of, of kingship and reign and authority that Yahweh has. Uh throughout this entire psalm. But verse 10 really gives it the, the oomph of saying, you really want to see where authority is. You want to see what's going to last forever. You want to see things that are permanent and that have stick to and will never change in the middle of a world that seems to change so often. Here's the work of Yahweh. Boom. And the Lord has delivered his promise, and he delivers on his promise, continuing to keep all of his goodness and his mercy for his people now and forever. And that's a promise that we can continue to hope in and exult in, uh, not just today and not just tomorrow, not just in our physical and earthly lives, but looking ahead into our resurrection. I think this, the way the psalm closes with the matter of the Lord's kingship really takes us back to what you brought out from the book of Revelation toward the beginning in Revelation 5, where all the heavenly host is praising. Well, who are they praising? And I think this is the important thing when it comes to what it means that God reigns. How does he reign over us? He reigns not as an earthly king, but he reigns as the book of Revelation presents him as the lamb who was slain and now is risen from the dead. So, I mean, we can't really talk about the Lord being king without thinking about the way that he reigns as king from the cross and from his empty and open tomb as the crucified and risen one, here is our Lord Jesus. And it is by that that he's established this eternal kingdom in which we praise him forever. Absolutely. Uh, when we think about, well, sometimes when Christians think about the way that the Lord reigns, we have pictures of him reigning in heaven uh, and we have pictures of, of God as king. But Hebrews talks about how the, the Lord reigns as king from the cross. John, in the Gospel of John, is also really clear about this. When you want to see the glory of God, and when it's time for Christ to be glorified, the book of John says that happened on the cross. The Lord who reigns is the same Lord who was crucified in the flesh for us. The Lord who acts is the Lord who acts for us on the cross. 
in trying to read Psalm 146 without the cross, without the eternal victory of Jesus Christ, without the Lamb who was slain ruling in the midst of his throne, is incomplete. Because the complete work of God is seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And his forever reign comes with hands that were pierced with nails, with a head that was crowned with thorns, with a cross, with a sign on top that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When we praise the Lord, and when we have these songs of Alleluia, and these psalms of Alleluia, we always do it with the fullness that the Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh, who has done these things, and who continues to protect and preserve his church. And that is a, a vital part of our understanding of who God is and how God acts. The same God who created everything is the same God who has redeemed everything by the suffering and death of Jesus. And we hold to both parts of that with really uh, firm tenacity, not giving up on one part or the other, but to say, God the creator is God the actor in Jesus who makes all things new by his death and resurrection. And when we praise the Lord, that's why, because God is our creator and our restorer. Pastor Peter Ill is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, helping us today with Psalm 146. Pastor Ill, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. God's blessings to you and to all our listeners. Hymn number 797 in the Lutheran service book is Praise the Almighty. And in stanza two of this hymn, which paraphrases Psalm 146, we sing this. Trust not in rulers, they are but mortal. Earth-born they are and soon decay. Vain are their counsels at life's last portal when the dark grave engulfs its prey. Since mortals can no help afford, place all your trust in Christ our Lord. Alleluia. Alleluia. The Lord does many good things through our earthly rulers, but that is not theirs to give us eternal life. The Lord Jesus, the King over all, crucified and raised for us, ascended to the Father's right hand. He reigns and he gives eternal life. Place your trust in him, singing, Alleluia, praise the Lord. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. We will be beginning a series on the book of Deuteronomy as the month of August begins next week. If you have any questions on the book of Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.